when you sit comfortably. I was just uh, reflecting as I was sitting there. Bird dharma, blowfly dharma, uh-huh. human dharma, mm. all dharmas. Well, today um, I want to talk more about our troublesome egos, um, but so we're not just um, flailing around in the mud, it's also important to see what we're aspiring to. And so this talk has um, a little more elegant title, which is Flows Like Water, Reflects Like a Mirror, and Responds Like an Echo. And that is a description of the mind of Wu Wei. Wu Wei is actually a, um, a Taoist concept. Um, as many of you know, um, Zen is an integration of Taoism and Buddhism. So some of the Taoist concepts come through. Very beautiful and very instructive. And um, uh, Wu Wei is the way of non-doing or of effortless effort. And that's what we aspire to and that's what actually starts to transform the more that we do this practice. So if you look at the opposites of it, flows like a river, the opposite to it is being kind of rigid, frozen, stagnant, mm-hmm. um, uh, reflects like a mirror. The opposite would be coming to situations in life with preconceived, fixed ideas, narrow ideas, um, views and so on, uh, rather than accurately just seeing what is there and responding to the circumstances as they are. And, um, and uh, responds like an echo, you know, is, is to accurately resonate with what is there. Mm-hmm. Like, you think of it like, um, in my profession, empathy is kind of like an echo. It's like you, if you pick up accurately what another person's feeling and, and feed it back to them, it's like, a, it's like if it's accurate, it's like a, a true echo of what that person is feeling and they, they resonate back because they feel understood. And that's an example of it. So that's what we're aspiring to. And um, Robert Aitken, one of my teachers, um, uh, said something once which always stuck in my mind, that, that staying in action in everyday life is making um, an, a, an appropriate response to each situation as it arises. So if our minds are flowing and not rigid, and if our minds are just accurately reflecting what is there rather than distorting and projecting, and we resonate accurately with what is there, then you might call that intuition or whatever. But the, intuitively the the appropriate responses come to match each situation. But what about when we make mistakes? Uh We all make mistakes in life. And what is the appropriate, appropriate way of responding if we make a mistake? Because, well, let me, I'll come to this later on, 
But one mistake about Buddhism is it'll make you perfect and you'll never make any mistakes anymore. Wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> Sorry, but we don't get there. We don't get to that kind of perfection. But um, uh, how do we respond when we recognise that we've made a mistake? Right? How do we appropriately respond to that situation? Right? Um, as many of you know, there's a, um, a well-known uh, and wonderful Zen story called Eating the Blame. If you're not familiar with it, I'll, I'll reiterate it. But it's about um, there was a, a rush to get the, the midday meal ready in a, in a uh, monastery one day. And everyone was rushing about. So the, the head cook rushed out and he chopped, quickly chopped up some vegetables. And he was doing it so quickly he didn't realise that he cut off the head of a snake as well as he was putting all the vegetables you know, in the bag to put in the pot and cook it. And so it all got cooked up together. And as I was sitting down to lunch, the, the, uh, everyone was saying, oh, this meal tastes interesting, do you know? It tastes really nice. And then the teacher got his chopsticks and he pulled out the, head, the, the snake's head with his chopsticks and said, what is this? Right? What is this? And then the head cook immediately grasped the head, the head of the snake and ate it. Right? Said, oh, thank you. Right. Uh-huh. Eating the blame. If you were to follow the story through, I'd imagine that all the monks there went, well done, what a good response to a mistake. What an appropriate response to a mistake. Uh -huh. So he just, without thinking, without thinking, just intuitively ate the snake head. Uh -huh. Now, I've told this story to a couple of you before session, but it's worthwhile sharing again is that I had my own eating the blame experience last week. And I went to um, um, a cafe where I often go in the morning and get for sort of a, a morning tea break and get a coffee and a muffin. And there I was eating away at my muffin. And then so suddenly I realised there was something hard in the middle of the muffin. And um, I thought it was like a hard seed or something, like a, you know, like a caraway seed or something. And I chewed on it more and it wasn't dissolving. And I took it out of my mouth and it was a piece of metal that was in there. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do about this? So I'm quite friendly with the people in the cafe. They know me and I go there quite a lot. And I thought, well... I don't really want to make a formal complaint and make a big issue of it because, you know, everyone makes mistakes. I'm sure they didn't do it, you know, intentionally. Um, and then I thought, yes, but it, it requires a response. They need to get the feedback, you know, that I found a bit of metal there. So I went up to them in a, in a friendly way and I said, look, I just need to let you know that I found a bit of metal in the muffin. And they were aghast. They really were aghast, you know, and, they, and, and she said, I'd better tell the cook, and she told the cook, and he was aghast as well, because it's quite a serious matter, you know, from a health point of view, they get in serious trouble, particularly when needles have been found mm -hmm. in strawberries and that as well, you know, so it was kind of in the news. Um, anyway, they, they gave me another muffin, you know, I went back and ate the muffin, and then I just sort of accidentally was running my tongue across my teeth. <laughs> And I realised that a filling had fell out. <laughs> oh, no. 
and that was the bit of metal that I thought was in the muffin. So what do you do then? Yeah. Well, I was relieved that I wasn't more aggressive in my response before because it would have made it even more harder for me to respond then. You know, so if I'd been sort of more aggressive about it and confrontational, well, one, I could have kept the new information to myself because it was a bit too embarrassing. Or I'd have to be very humbled, you know, in going back to them and say, actually, it wasn't your fault, it was a filling that fell out. And um, it would have been very embarrassing, you know. Um, but, um, but I needed to go back and then let them know because they're really quite, quite concerned about it. You know? So I had, so I, you know, the option of keeping the information itself wasn't an option, you know, because that would be not in keeping with the precepts. So that wasn't an option to do it. I had to go back. So it wasn't too, too hard. I went back and I said, look, I just realised I made a mistake and it was a feeling that fell out. And of course they were, they were greatly relieved, you know, and we all had a bit of a laugh about it and it turned out okay. But, it, but it's an ex- that's, that's my eating the blame um, story. And uh, so easily we can, we can jump to conclusions and we think that we're, we're right about something. But then what happens when we get new information and then we realise that what we really thought was true was not true. How, how do we respond to that? How, what do we do then? I'll give another example of it too. Um, some years ago, um, as my mother was getting um, older, I realised that um, she ne- there was less and less contact happening between the two of us over months. And, um, and I felt like, well, there's only ever contact because I initiated, you know, and I started to get a bit annoyed with her. And I thought, well, damn it, I'm not going to take the initiative all the time, you know, she can take some initiative as well. And so I was carrying this annoyance around and I hadn't seen her for a few months. And then, then um, I can't remember how I found out, but I found out that she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So she couldn't even remember whether she'd been in contact with me or anything. And so at that point, like I remember, as soon as I got that information, it's like the annoyance just melted straight away, you know, and I felt um, uh, uh, a bit remorseful, you know, and, and guilty, but then you move through that as well. That's okay. And then I decided, you know, that obviously I would take the initiative to see her. But again, it's another example. You, you think you're right about something and you react in a certain way and then bang, new information comes along, you got it completely wrong. What do we do? How do we respond to the mistake? That is the question. This comes to the heart of what is referred to in um, Zen quite frequently as cultivating don't know mind. You know, the mind that is just clear and open and doesn't, in a knee-jerk reaction way, jump to conclusions. Right? So, one, we can jump to conclusions, and sometimes it may be understandable why we do, but then when we realise we get other information, we can let go 
and not try and be in control, or we hang on. And the hanging on is a kind of stubborn pride, you know, and we hold on, that's where the rigidity comes in. You know, because it's almost like, um, if I admit I'm wrong, my world will fall apart. You know, so pride and shame go together and we can get stuck in, in this stubborn pride because we're so fearful of um, making a mistake and, and losing face, etc. Um, and, um, but once we drop into it's okay to make mistakes, you know, we're human, if we can develop, cultivate that kind of approach to it, then something shifts. You know, it's not, not actually that bad. It's the fear of it being bad stops us, you know, and keeps us stuck in that, that stubborn pride. Um, but when we kind of recognise, oh, well, yeah, that's the way it is, something can shift easily. You know, we're, we're not rigid, we're not stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, in some of my uh, reading lately, more as a, as a psychologist rather than um, um, a Zen practitioner, um, I've been very interested in the research into what's referred to as temperament. And there's a lot of, lot of solid evidence that all of us are born with temperaments. Some people have just come out more anxious than others. Some are what they call high reactive, low reactive. Um, and there's other variations on it. And, um, and in looking into that um, more and more, um, there's something, something fell away for me when I look back on my own childhood that in some ways I had quite a, quite a sensitive temperament. In other words, I wasn't, I was quite, quite resilient, you know. Um, but in, in some situations, like social situations, I could get um, very ashamed and guilty very easily and blush very easily. And, and, and um, I, you know, my refrain was like, what's wrong with me, you know? How do I control this? And the more you try and control it, the less you control it. And uh, you think there's something wrong with you and you're trying to work it out and manage it. And then when you look back with the wisdom of years and this kind of scientific sort of basis to it, you go, well, that's just the way I was. And, and there's, there's a oneness with that in some way. It's just the way I was, just the way the cards were dealt, that I got those kind of chemicals running through my brain and those, those neural pathways. And it's true for... And then if, you, if that kind of um, acceptance and oneness comes with yourself, then it can be conveyed to other people as well. And sometimes some people are just born, it's just in their DNA, that they're born with more testosterone, right? So they're going to be, they're going to be by nature more kind of, you know, aggressive, maybe dominant kind of people. That's just the kind of way they are. Doesn't mean that excuses a whole lot of behaviour, but then that person's dharma challenge, if they are a dharma practitioner, if that's what their disposition is, is that they transform that aggression into determination. And if you're born with a sensitive disposition, then, then there's good things that come with that as well, because often you've got a really good sensitive radar 
for picking up things about other people or about yourself that people who are more thick-skinned don't have, you know, and you can value that really good sensitive radar that you have to pick up things you know, that other people just may not get at all. Mm-hmm. And you start to value that about yourself. Now, because I'm of a scientific bent, I'm inclined to think that's the reason, you know, temperament and, and environment, you know, nature and nurture is what shapes our, our personality. But if you're a Tibetan Buddhist, you would probably have the view that that's just your karma, the way that you came out, right? Um, that in past lives you acted in a certain way and it created these kind of conditions so that you came out as very sensitive or very aggressive or whatever. Um, I'm inclined to have a scientific view of it. I don't really have a strong investment in that kind of Buddhist view. But how do I know? I don't know. Who says science is right? I don't know. If I have some new information that comes to me, or I remember a past life, maybe that might change my view. I need to be open to that. So, we don't know, ultimately. We just make sort of informed guesses about trying to understand our life. Um, some time ago, I had um, uh, a father and son came to, came to me for counselling. And the father was in his 80s and the son was around about 50. And um, the father initiated the counselling with his son because he said they'd been estranged for quite some period of time and he wanted to somehow reconcile with his son. And um, as the session started, they they both brought up criticisms about each other's character. Um, But there was a distinction in the way, a clear distinction in the way the old man dealt with that and how the young man dealt with it. And the old man was quite willing to um, recognise his foibles and his mistakes and so on. And, And there was this openness, you could see, that despite all that had happened between them, he wanted to reconcile with his son. But the son being 30 years younger, the difference was is that the son couldn't recognise or acknowledge his foibles. He was, he was stuck in this stubborn pride. And that's perhaps the difference that age brings to us, is that the older that we get, um, um, and the more experience that we've had with life and, and the horizon of when we're going to die is coming up very close when you're 80 compared to 50 is that there's a chance just through ageing experience for something to open up more. So it's more like a non-doing, you know, that the river is flowing, the mirror is reflecting accurately, you know, the echo is resonating accurately to what is. And uh, there's not this need to control. Uh-huh. The need to control starts to fall away so something else can come through. Uh-huh. 
So that was the difference between the old man and, and the young man. But um, even at the uh, ripe old age of um, 69 or 29 or whatever, we can aspire to be like, more like the old man. Mm-hmm. That's if there's a maturing process that happens and that softening process through what we do, we, we, can, we, can, um, we can cultivate that now. We don't have to wait till we're 80. Being stubborn um, can then become um, not just a situational thing, it can become an identity, you know, so that we, we get fixed into a, a rigid identity of what we think we are. And um, one of those rigid identities that you can often see in people is that they always need to be in control in every situation that they're in. Um, now, there are times when we need to be in control. That's, that's our job description. Um, recently, I went out with um, Hans, who's one of our fellow uh, Dharma members and friends in Sydney, who's the, um, a captain on the James Craig, which is a tall ship. And it's Hans's job to be in control of that ship. That's his job description. That's what he needs to do. He needs to make decisions and tell people what to do, right? And, and he's a very good captain too, I must say. You know, he's very, very calm and approachable. So there's a kind of a, a fluidity and, and, and uh, firmness but gentleness in the way that he, he gives instructions to people. Um, so there's, there's nothing wrong with leadership and needing to be in control. But what if, what if you've got to be the captain all the time, right? In every situation, right? That's a problem, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's a real problem. Um, once I was going out to my boat on the tender and there were some other sailors in another little group going out too. And, and sailors have this kind of um, camaraderie between one another where they're always sort of ribbing one another and joking with one another. Um, but these, these sailors were talking with one another. And they said, I'll never go out with Bill. Don't ever go out with Bill, he's got a captain's complex. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so it was a sailor's way. This is kind of the way men often talk with one another, with kind of use humour and directness, you know, to deal with these kind of issues. You know, instead of being there and being resentful of Bill, you know, trying to be in control all the time, you know, they, they actually make a joke of it, you know, and point out what's actually occurring. You know, so it kind of diffuses the situation. But yes, they thought Bill had a captain complex, right? He's always got to be in control. Now, the need to be in control, and and all of us to do it in one way or another, um, um, anxiety acts in very different ways within us. And, and, and anxiety in some ways is the fear of the unknown, you know, when we need, we need certainty. Some people when they're anxious kind of fall apart, like they go more into chaos. That's more clear to see. What's not quite so obvious to see is that some people when they're anxious become rigid, right? And then they need to control more and more and more and they can't have other people in control because they can't trust them to be in control, right? So, so they tighten up more and more and more. They're not like the river or the river reflecting, or the, or the bell, or the, the echo, 
resonating to the bell. It's like that's the way their anxiety manifests itself. But it's not so obvious. And they think it's everyone else who's anxious, not them. Project it outwards. So that there's many different ways that that fear of chaos and uncertainty can manifest. Um, many different ways that it can occur. <coughs> Good example of don't know mind. I just recently started reading a book which um, I think some of you have recommended to me that you enjoyed a lot called um, Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully by Frank Ostasenki. And he talked about, he himself has helped so many people through death and dying and you know, palliative care. He was having an operation in um, hospital and his son came to visit him before the operation. And, um, and his son, out of concern for his father, said, how do you think the operation's going to go? you think it's going to be all right? And Frank replied to him, said, well, I'm not going to take sides. <laughs> Don't know mine, no? Don't know. I'm, I'm not going to take sides. We can become rigidly, chronically optimistic or we become rigidly pessimistic, but they're both forms of rigidity. We don't know. I'm not going to take sides. We don't always have to have an opinion about something. We always think it's got to be this or that, but we forget we don't have to have an opinion because we don't know. And, and we, that's the, that the don't know mind is the mind that we aspire to cultivate in Zen practice. It's not holding on to anything. It's fluid. It can move with every changing circumstance as it comes along. Sometimes in um, Dharma circles, um, in teaching, in teachers, um, in, I'm thinking particularly of instances in teachers in Tibetan Buddhism, but also teachers in the Zen tradition, um, can, you know, through being in a leadership and teaching role and so on, can start to get an idea of themselves that they're perfect. And then as they start to project the idea that they're perfect, the people around them start to think that they're perfect. So it reinforces and it goes around and around because the people who are the students would like to think that they're perfect too or they can aspire to it. And so there's this idea of perfection, you know, starts to surround a leader. And then there are a number of instances that have happened in contemporary times with Tibetan teachers, but also Zen teachers, where they start to act in unconventional ways which seem to be crazy um, and harmful and unethical. Um, but 
the students think it's just oh, it's just crazy wisdom, you know. So actually, the teacher knows what he's doing. He's actually in control of this, and it's a form of teaching. But but so frequently, it's not crazy wisdom. It's just craziness. <laughs> it's just plain craziness. The person is actually out of control. They become inflated in some way into this idea that they think they're perfect, and so everything that they do is okay. You know. Um, so they can cross boundaries sexually and financially and abuse people and even hit people. And it's all crazy wisdom, it's all okay. The teacher knows he's perfect, he's in control. That's, that's, the, that's the pathway that these things can potentially go down. But um, a good role model is the founder of, one of the founders of Zen in um, Japan, Dogen, who at the end of his life said, my life has been one continuous mistake. <laughs> what a humble epitaph to a life. Even the great Dogen, you know, my life has been one continuous mistake. Um, the thing is, I think this is recognised more clearly in um, Christianity and in Judaism sometimes that it is in Buddhism, we get the idea that the Buddha was, became this perfect human being. So therefore, he doesn't make any mistakes anymore. But you, you talk to people who are immersed in, the, in the, the Christian tradition or the Judaic tradition, for example, um, their view is that we're all flawed human beings. Well, we're all just flawed human beings. <laughs> and, and there's something comforting and normalising and recognise that that's what we are. So the aspiration of a teacher or a student, you know, in this doing, doing this work is not to aim at perfection. Perfection is a very grandiose, egocentric position to be in. It's like that's the ego seeking spirituality, expecting spirituality that I talked about in the first talk. So we reach some state of perfection. We, we, we don't reach that at all. But the thing to leave you with, you know, and the thing to work with in our everyday life is how we respond to a mistake is a true test of character. Mm -hmm. Because the mistake is actually what the suchness of life is in this moment. How do we respond to that rather than the fact that we never make mistakes is really the true, the true test of character and the true reflection of Zen practice. And then we, we transform the mistake. Now we, don't, we don't spiral down into shame or guilt about the mistake. We acknowledge the mistake and we grow from the, from the mistake and we transform it. We eat the head of the snake. <laughs>